welcome to an episode of... Beneath the, the screen of the Ultra Cracks. That's right, so. we actually got together and recorded one, suckers. <laughs> Did we, though? I mean, we, we don't really know yet. Well, okay, as of right now, everything looks good. Not we've, thought, we, we've thought that before. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, uh, today uh, we're going to be talking about... I don't. I really don't know what the title of this podcast is, outside of maybe the lack of political spine in mainstream comic book movies. Yeah, screw it. We'll we'll come up with a more concise title later, and then uh, and then add it in post. Awesome. I mean, to the to the posting, not to the audio. So uh, I probably shouldn't have admitted that into the microphone. Well, first off, let me just tell you, there is no post. Right. <laughs> this is raw, a hundred percent live. Except for the recording part. But well, yeah, but outside of I, that, I like, we don't man. diddle. Anyway, um, what's going on in the world right now, Jeremiah? Kevin Feige has announced that there will be not one, but two, possibly, LGBTQ characters in the Marvel Universe in the future. Yeah, that's the, maybe the most underwhelming thing that I have been told I should be excited about <laughs> by Marvel. I mean, you know, with their excellent track record of assuring us that Valkyrie is definitely not straight, but you probably can't see it in the mood. Look, don't worry about it. It's true. And you can kind of see it if you squint and maybe look at cut scenes. That's breaking new ground. To be fair, uh, Tessa Thompson, who played Valkyrie, is the one who has to say, yeah, no, she's fine. Well, yeah, and, and that's good, but when you only hear it in interviews, right. like, hold on, let me open up a new wing of the Dumbledore Mu- M- Memorial Museum for post-hoc gayness. Like... Well, there's, um, there's an article in Forbes by Scott Mendelson, and he was basically attacking this new trend of studios doing just that, that sort of yeah. J.K. Rowling of post-querying a character. Yeah. Oh, no, no, they were the whole time. What, did you not notice because it wasn't there? Well, that's your fault. And for... he attacked a favorite <laughs> argument that Hollywood uses. and Well, not so much that Hollywood uses, but it's always been assumed that they mm-hmm. do this because of the Chinese market or the overseas market. Oh, no, like, China has their problems. Right. But we've always done this. Right, and well, not only that, but the... The notion of China censorship is a real thing, but they only tend to censor nationalism propaganda type things. Things yeah. that make China as a government or as a nation look bad. They took Moonlight. They didn't touch it. Yeah. And Moonlight is about gay black men. That is, that is and it yeah, did there's, really well. <laughs> that, yeah, you, that argument is sunk. Like, you can't say that if Moonlight went in China. <laughs> now, are oh. there some governments that oppress gay cultures, gay cultures and China being one of them? Yes. They just tend not to do it with the China censorship board. And other countries may have as well, but that's never really stopped them from, you know, doing things. They just use it as an excuse. Right. Well, because it's, it's like saying that... Y- it's like saying you have a Canadian girlfriend, but with racism. Like, nobody know, nobody in America knows anything about other countries, right. generally speaking. So it's like, oh, no, oh man, we could we could have, but the but China, you know, right. it's, you know what it's like there. You, you don't know what well, it's like. Well, not only that, but it is the, 
they'll come out, and most of the time it's the studio telling you this or someone connected with the movie, and they'll yeah. tell you we had to cut it for time or something, and then you see the movie, and they could have easily spared two or three seconds. Yeah, there's the no... The new Jurassic World uh, movie has a cutscene where one of the characters comes out as gay to Chris Pratt, telling Chris Pratt that he is, in fact, not attractive to her. <laughs> and they cut it for time, and it's almost two hours, and there's an entire subplot dealing with clones that literally goes nowhere and has no bearing on the movie, so I don't know why they couldn't have like, cut I it. Like, I love, I love the idea that, like, no, no, we cut it for time. <laughs> right. But what makes you rank what is worthwhile to keep and what is not worthwhile to keep for large air quotes time <laughs> like, like that's it's such a weasel word way of talking about that like it's insane because it's oh no i mean time you can't time exists you, know, you can't fight used, time it used to be the studios were just on everything and saying no we're not gonna do it and yeah. now, they're like, oh, we did it. Wink, wink. We just decided well, not I to mean, it's, it is, it's interesting what it says. Because it clearly shows that for what it's worth, the there is a, there is a serious market for people who think that gay people are people. Right. And that you can't ignore that. But uh, that's clearly not enough yet. Like, oh no, we'll t- we'll wink and nudge. You know, it's it's Pride Month. Yay, we have rainbows on our stuff, and that means that we're fine. But well, and this is the thing about Pride Month is we've gotten to a point when Pride Month comes around, the corporations who are not normally Pride friendly oh, all yeah. of a sudden become Pride friendly for about thirty days. Yeah, ex- like thirty. Oh no, no, exactly thirty days. <laughs> They may do something in the end run, you know, like in the, in the interim to screw it all up. And then all of a sudden oh. they'll have to backtrack and they lose that. It's but for about just... 30 days, I, they I, will I, all I... of a sudden acknowledge that gay people exist. And they will uh, also acknowledge that their money has value. Right. It's just so shallow. It, I mean, obviously, happy Pride Month, by the way. But, uh, <laughs> hey, this will come out, like, right at the end of the month, and we're all immediately being super bleak. To be fair, it. we haven't recorded Jack this month, so this is... That was, that was because of time constraints, though, Jeremiah. <laughs> that old voice. Oh. But, it's... Anyway, so, yay, question mark? Well, and to get into comic book movies already a little bit from that, it yeah. says something that while Deadpool 2 has its problems with uh, fidging uh, women tropes, it yeah. does have, unabashedly, two queer characters who are in a relationship, and it is said explicitly, in a relationship. Yeah. The only issue is they have almost no real bearing on the plot. Which, yeah. on one end, yay, because that means their survival is cemented. Right. <laughs> on the other hand, it would be nice if they had something more to do than just be gay with each other. Which, don't get me wrong, in of itself is kind of amazing. <laughs> but it's, it's a weird... Like they, they, yeah, it, it's, it's, you know, uh, they get to exist... And not be like corpses, 
uh, and it's not like a, a Chekhov's gun thing where like their their gayness has to be part of the plot in some way. It's just there, right? And that's something. <laughs> in contrast, Superfly, which I saw the other day, which oh, is also really really yeah. fun, and also mm. has a polyamorous bisexual relationship with the main character. Oh, wow. It is a triad relationship, and the other two women don't necessarily need Superfly there, but he is included, and all three are, to some degree, involved in the planning of the organization. Wow, that is that is just way realer than... <laughs> uh, not, not to say there's anything unreal about, uh, like, you know, just monogamous gay relationships, but, like... That's not something I expect in a movie that I've heard of. Right! Not only that, but a... <laughs> like, that's like the kind of thing I... ...has its roots in exploitation, and black yeah. exploitation was typically not friendly towards queer characters. No. Um, well, that's also because most exploitation was not friendly to queer characters. That should be also noted. Um, right. Russ Meyer, and myself, also not friendly to queer characters. Um... Hmm. Sadly, continually in that vein, uh, the new Superfly, not all three of them uh, managed to get out of the movie alive. Uh, of course. All right. Well, I don't know. I'll, I'll, I'll definitely see it. I'm just not going to see it. I'm just going to tell you this soon. slightly yeah. side note. Superfly mm-hmm. demands to be seen if only because they end a car chase with a car crashing into and blowing up a Confederate monument. Ah! Which I am shocked I haven't seen in a DC or Marvel movie yet. That's pretty good. I mean, I clapped and I cheered. Oh, nice. Anyway, so... This leads us into what our topic is. Despite the fact that Marvel and DC and other comic book movies have no end of destruction of buildings in sight... Yeah. They are what, buildings without meaning. Yeah, the, the the like what does what does it mean to be political in a superhero movie in the present time? Or or what or maybe more like what does politics mean or how does it represent itself? These are our broad area of questions that we will wander through for the next little while. Well, <laughs> it is often said and it's sort of Nija criticism, but this is something I think is valid Nija criticism. Mm. Up until, like, maybe the last two or three years. Comic book movies were almost a psychological extension of our way of dealing with 9-11. I mean, yeah. Like, like they broke then. I mean, there there were some... (laughs) There were some great, groundbreaking, like, ahead-of-the-curve superhero movies before 9-11. Mostly just Blade. Uh, (laughs) But... Well, you have the Tim Burton Batman and stuff, but... Yeah, but I mean, I I, don't, I barely count those in the same era, really. Right. Like, Tim Burton Batman was sort of the end, or at least maybe the high point of the same era as, like, you know, Donner Superman. X-Men, Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies, there's a, a notion of terrorism that is used. Uh, Sam and Raimi like, Spider-Man has 9-11 imagery, as does, by the way, Batman v Superman. And I mean, if if... If we lived in the timeline where 9-11 didn't happen, which, damn, missed it, uh, <laughs> there would, I guarantee there would not have been nearly as many American flags in Spider-Man. 
like, well, there is a lot. Like, if you watch those movies, like, you can see it. Like, what New York, the meaning of New York changed through the development of that movie. It does. Like, <laughs> like the image of the Twin Towers. Alone. And I mean, we're... It's, it's, you know, how it, like, 17 years later now, and we're only just now getting back to what New York used to mean, which was evil, elitist, coastal people that we don't care about. Right. Because they, they're not real Americans. Like, we're finally getting back to that, that, like, idea of New York of our childhood. Understand there was a time when Rudy Giuliani oh, God. said in an interview what happens after the election... The election meeting between John McCain and then-candidate Barack Obama, soon-to-be President Barack Obama, his response was, then we will all be Americans again. Yeah. This is the that same a... man, by the way, who is now a Ten lawyer for the fascist Trump. <laughs> yeah. Ten years uh, is a lot longer than you might think. <laughs> uh, excuse me, I have to say this because it drives him up the wall. Doll hands, fascist uh... Trumps. Tiny doll, little doll. Hands. I mean, if we had to go through all of the physical features of his that resemble a poorly made doll from hands to <laughs> hair to other things, like, we would be here a while. Uh, hey, as it turns out, we have a political slant, and it's not secret. <laughs> um, Shaka! So, so politics, uh, like, broadly speaking, I, I, have to, I have to jump in with my favorite thing to lead with. Because I actually think you can see a lot of the trends in the the politics or the avoidance of overt politics in a lot of superhero movies happened in the same way that it happened in comics in some ways or at least except we sort of skipped the first part uh because you look at superman and in the first issue of action comics one of my favorite things on this stupid planet (laughs) superman does the following things he saves a falsely accused woman from death row he beats the crap out of a man who is beating his wife, and he kidnaps and torments a lobbyist to try and find out who uh, the who they're working for that is trying to get us drawn into like some like war in a vague other country. Like it's which then leads us to Zack Snyder's Superman, which has to be talked into doing anything. Anything Nazis. Like I had this conversation with Kara yesterday. We were talking about, as we do sometimes in in this house, uh, superhero movies. And it's like, there's an amazing question uh, to me of like, okay, what is Batman Begins about? Right. Batman Begins is about a, a few things, but if you pull to like a core emotion, it is about fear and what we can use it for, how we overcome it, how we can use it. Like that, like it's the word is used enough times that you know what it is. (laughs) And I mean, you could also make an argument that it's about Batman learning that uh, how to uh, be okay with uh, killing someone. But but let's let's leave that aside for a moment. And it's just okay. It's a different podcast episode altogether. (laughs) But but there is a core. Like Batman, uh, Batman Begins is about some things that you can identify. What is Man of Steel about? <laughs> I wish I knew because I don't think Zack Snyder <laughs> knows. I've heard him say what he thinks is about, but I don't see it. Right. And you can, like, the things that he wants it to be about are super obvious. Uh, like, choosing between dads, maybe, right. is on that list. 
Uh, getting the military to like you, and that meaning that you're good. Um, well, okay, and... to be fair, one of the things I think he's honestly striving to do is trying to look at how, as an immigrant, you straddle the notion oh, of, absolutely. Of, I think, of adopted I think, like, home and actual home. I think there are a lot of incredibly great plot thread beginnings in Man <laughs> of Steel. I love the first hour of Man of Steel because it has so much potential. <laughs> it could, like, it could do, still do with some reorganization, because uh, yeah, um, the 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 placement of flashbacks and things is is uh, Lindsay Ellis has a really good video about this actually, but uh, but still, she like, has a great video about everything, including fascism that, and all. That, but oh god, that's true. <laughs> uh, but yeah, like, but Man of Steel, it it. It's like it's reaching for that idea because it, it super reaches for that idea of like seeing nine eleven. Right. In fact, it it is maybe the most shameless use of us knowing what the the dis, like what urban destruction of that scale looks like. Right. Because like Avengers has urban destruction, but in a cartoony way. Not only that, but the Avengers has the audacity to have Captain America try to do. Not just Captain America. Other like there's an, a distinct attempt to get the innocent out. Yeah, like it kind of happened, and like you can also see uh, Age of Ultron builds on this because like so much of the the end of the movie is all like about saving the people, and you can 100 percent tell that that came from critiques of not just the first Avengers movie, but also Batman or not Batman, uh, also Man of Steel, right. And it it's, is interesting. It's... Sorry, go ahead. No, no, I, I just I think it's it's kind of hilarious how overt a lot of those things are. Well, the criticism about the mass destruction, so I think, took both D, uh, DC and Warner Brothers and Marvel by surprise. Absolutely, I think they didn't somehow they didn't realize that the th- the imagery they were using was meaningful. Well, not only <laughs> that, but we've been blowing shit up on screen for so long. Yeah, thanks, Roland Emmerich. <laughs> it's not just him in a it's not just he does him. something that the marvel people don't do and i think just kind of yeah important. absolutely um what it is is it's we've never had what well, we have probably but like 9 11 was such a traumatic experience for the country well it was also a traumatic series never really grappled with it was also a traumatic experience that everyone was able to see in real time right and it affected Everyone in the country. It was that weird moment, and when Fox News and MSN, like all the news organizations, will agreed on one thing: this was awful. Yeah, there's, it's just yeah. <laughs> and what happened was Man of Steel, Avengers. They started using some of the imagery, maybe subconsciously. Maybe I May, think Snyder mm. used it consciously, but I'll give him the oh, benefit yeah. of the doubt. And just all of a sudden, they were just taken aback at like, whoa, whoa, whoa! People don't like the like. What? Since when have we ever had to explain the death toll in a crumbling building? Yeah, I feel like it also has a lot to do with habit. Right. And I, I don't think I don't think it's uh, I don't think this is an excuse, but I think most of the missteps that were made in the the sort of early part of this generation of superhero movies is people is is filmmakers and producers doing the things that they have always done because that's what they did and just like not considering that the culture around those habits has changed well again that goes back to the fact that we never 
really addressed 9-11 as an artistic community in terms of cinema. Yeah. I mean, hell, part, uh, a big part of, of the the relationship between 9-11 and the Sam Raimi Spider-Man is it being ignored. Right. And, like, like, <laughs> like the amount of, like, the, the first Spider-Man teaser trailer had a helicopter, like, webbed between the two towers. And then in the movie itself, you can see the, sh- you can see the shadow of it sort of conceptually in how many American flags you see and in the fact that they had to erase the Twin Towers from, like, certain shots. But that's it. Like it's 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 coping by uh, having a bunch more nationalist imagery and not talking about anything. And that's one of the things that's sort of baffling artistically when you look at it. Yeah. Uh, especially in Hollywood, the sort of there was a lot of mourning and a lot of oh my god, this is awful. And then there was a lot of flag waving and drum beach, which is understandable considering what mm. happened. But there yeah. was never. It wasn't until later, and even then. Everything we tend to look at tend to be how we responded militarily as opposed yeah. to how the country itself changed viscerally. Like, those are, if you were alive when that happened and of a certain age, there's a ground shift that happened in the country that's mm. sort of almost baffling. Yeah. It's like the amount of, when you look at historically how Hollywood has normally treated something of that magnitude and how it treated this way, it's. The response was paltry. Yeah, it's 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 just bizarre. And superhero movies have, by and large, continued that. Like, there's a sort of we talked about this before, a sort of lack of heroism in superhero movies. Yeah, uh, in fact, a lot of the uh, as I love superhero movies, so I am <laughs> culpable for for maybe not paying enough attention to this, especially early on. But man, a lot of superhero movies are about learning who it's okay to kill. Yes! <laughs> and when. Like, Iron like Tony Stark murders the shit out of everyone in every Iron Man movie. Uh, except for, like, whoever the main villain is. Right. <laughs> Sometimes. Jeff Bridges. Uh, and, like, even, like, like I said, I, I mean, I was not really kidding when I say the lesson at the end of Batman Begins is, oh... Bruce Wayne learns that if you don't save someone, it technically doesn't count as killing them. <laughs> and then, like, the lesson of Batman, uh, of, of Dark Knight is, oh, no, it's fine to use invasive technology to spy on literally everyone as long as the right people are doing it. Like, it's, it's amazing. It's one of those things where I think there's a certain amount of moral and political investigation that goes on when you write that yeah. seems like they sidestepped, ignored, or were shut down in in the productions of these movies. Yeah. Because Captain America, as we talked about a little bit before the podcast, mm. yes, they show a lot of Nazis getting punched. And yes, it's in World War Two, But oddly enough, the Nazis aren't the bad guy, it's Hydra. Yeah, and I, I actually ran a check on this. And in Captain America, the first Avenger, the word Nazi is spoken aloud six times. Only six? Six times. I think you see it written, I think you see it written down on a headline once. That's absurd. Yeah, go back and watch it. Uh, Like, and I love, I love Joe Johnston because he directed The Rocketeer, the, one of the greatest superhero movies of all time. Uh... (laughs) And, uh, and I love the movie in general. It's well cast, it's well designed, it's just fun. But, man, they got away from Nazis quickly, 
And, like, why is Hydra bad? Because they're worse than Nazis. Okay, let's move on. Uh, what? By the way... I'm sorry. <laughs> How are they worse than Nazis? Don't know, just are. Okay, I need a better answer. Well, it's because they're, it's because they're the deep science division. What does that mean? They, so they want to steal Odin's stuff, and that makes them worse than... Because <sighs> okay. what they're implying is the death of millions of people... Millions of Jews in concentration camps. Yeah, like somehow oh, so... less than wanting to steal some aliens' jewelry. Okay, so all the people who were gassed and worked to death for being Jewish or Roma or queer or disabled, like oh, okay, so we're nope. Uh, go- going after Odin's stuff—that's what makes you worse. And I mean, you could make it—you could make a broad argument for scale of like, oh, well, they could do use magic to do Nazi stuff, but it's still they were. Mm, that's when you ignore the realities of the history that your thing is taking place in to that extent. That's weird and creepy. <laughs> well, okay. Joe Johnson's Rocketeer. And I have a feeling that the lack of Nazi anti Nazi propaganda mm-hmm. in Captain America might have been a Marvel. Oh, well, I, I mean, I because think it's also... Rocketeer has a line that we love specifically saying, <laughs> I, I may be a gangster, but I'm no two-bit nasty Nazi, and then he punches a Nazi. <laughs> right. Like the one of the the freaking mafia dudes is like, wait, you're a Nazi? No, screw you! And, like, <laughs> right. flips. Flips There's on the Nazis. legitimate, like, character turn that happens. <laughs> uh, solidarity with my American criminal brethren. Hooray. <laughs> um... <laughs> But yeah, and I I mean there's cuz there's a lot of other stuff to unpack. Like I don't I'm not I'm not making the argument that like Marvel is soft on Nazis exactly. Right. I, I could I mean maybe I could try. It it might be fun. <laughs> But but there's also like it's I think it's a marketing decision because there are also like places in the world where you don't just get to use Nazi symbolism. Right. Like for example, if I were to like Germany, I think they have some <laughs> Germany partic- <laughs> because for some reason decided they inter- to ban that. And they actually have a really because- interesting history with Nazis. You should look into it. <laughs> <laughs> because they're like, you know what? No, no, no. Let's not even play. <laughs> but like that. But just because it wasn't meant as a political decision doesn't mean there aren't political ramifications for avoiding that history. Like it's. Hmm. Exactly. Especially for like making a movie based on a character created by a dude who fought in World War II and then came back home and got in street fights with American white supremacists and neo Nazis. Right. Like, okay. Now Jack Kirby is, also... is rad. Yeah. Jack Kirby is rad. Um, I think metaphors also. I tend to think most superhero movies look at metaphors in a shallow sense. Yes. Um, X Men famously like to talk about how Professor X is a stand-in for Martin Luther King, and oh, yeah. is a stand-in for Malcolm X. Oh, uh, well, and I, I think immediately... The fact that neither one of them are black, but all right. right. Right, immediately, I feel like the in parentheses there is their stand-ins for the white people understanding of Malcolm <laughs> X and Martin Luther King. Right, because understand that Malcolm X and Martin Luther King... While not the best of friends, are hardly what you would call one of them wants to see the downfall of an entire civilization, 
As opposed to, you know, wanting to go to Africa to get away from white white oppression. As, like, you know, there's a, there's a, the, the metaphor breaks down because it's never treated as what is actually implied. Yeah, it's it's um, like a metaphor too far removed from what it thinks it's a metaphor for. Uh, the Incredibles 2 has the same issue in which they're oh, meant no. to be a metaphor for something, but it's never made clear what the metaphor is. Mm. Because like the law, there's a law against supers. Well, the law is illegal. That's a bad law. Well, how do you treat a bad law? That's meant to mean something. But, but it doesn't it, quite get there. Well, because the supers were popular before the law came in. Yeah. So it doesn't carry over to almost any other known minority oppression that was ever banned by an evil law. Yeah. That's, it's, this, is, this is what happens, like, and I love the first Incredibles, but this is what happens when you take, like, the broad logic of Watchmen, but don't, like, figure out why it worked that way, and then try and do more of it. Don't get me wrong, <laughs> the fact that Incredibles 2 even has a conversation about what the law is, and how you are, what do you right. do with an immoral law, doesn't give you any answers, but that's fine. The fact well, that I mean, it's not, it's not in... Kids, I mean, I'm not expecting it to be Inherit the Wind, but... (laughs) (laughs) But there's there's a spectrum between not talking about it and saying to camera, I believe I am guilty of violating an unjust law. (laughs) There is, in fact, a thing you can do and a thing you cannot do. Um, Ironically... By the way... By the way, watch Inherit the Wind if you haven't. I mean, it's one oh, of the, please. It's a great, oh, please do. <laughs> and a great play. It's the best. <laughs> uh, the uh, Black Panther might be the one comic book movie, modern day, that successfully mm. has a political agenda, has a political metaphor, and doesn't shy away from any of it. Yeah, like it has... It has a plethora of voices, not just, like, a lot of people when they talk about Black Panther, they boil it down, and I've been guilty of this a time or two myself, they'll boil it down to, like, uh, T'Challa's, where T'Challa ended up coming down versus where, what Killmonger wanted. Right. And there's more, there are, like, all of the characters in the main, like, cast have perspectives that they put forward. Like, even um, Okoye, she's a god to the king and very much like the secret service it doesn't matter who the king is your job the oath you took is protective and night and like like look he's not a good king and she's like that doesn't matter Mm. like these are real world relevant conversations to have (laughs) like yeah what you know the about law about loyalty about all of these sorts of questions of of Legal right and wrong versus moral right and wrong. Like, there's a lot going on in Black Panther. And I think it speaks volumes to for Okoye that the moment she sees that Killmonger will not respect the law, mm. it's when she stops protecting him. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think... Like, okay, I, this is not a critique of Black Panther. This is a critique of Marvel. I want to be clear about that. Because I... I oh, God. Black Panther is one of my top favorite Marvel movies up there with the uh, Guardians movies. Right. But, like, I feel like the what we see in Black Panther and all of its successes come, broadly speaking, I think, not uh, 
aside from the obvious talent of the creative people involved. But uh, I think there's there there may be some ice cream waiting outside or something like a food truck. Uh, uh, it's a food truck. You're fine. Okay. Uh, anyway, uh, but I think it comes from the fact that a the action primarily takes place in a fictional country, uh, and b the fact that it centers on black characters means that people are going to read it as political automatically in America so you don't have to hide it. Right. Or you don't have to pretend it's not going to be that. Like, people... Somehow, it's possible to make a Captain America movie and people to be like, well, it's not political, though. <laughs> but you can't, like... And I'm just gonna let you laugh and that'll be the whole commentary on that. <laughs> uh, but, like, Black Panther doesn't get that and they leaned into it incredibly successfully. Well, and it's also it's important that... The- I think Marvel made the great choice of allowing black creators to tell yeah. Black Panther's story. Because mm. what they did was, they made it to where you couldn't look away. Everywhere <laughs> you looked was a black voice, and everywhere you looked was a black take on politics. Right. And everywhere you looked, it was the black experience, both lived and imagined, was front and center. Yeah. Uh, Brian Fuller, uh, there's a show called Pushing Daisies. Yeah, yeah. And this is like the second or third show that he ever created. And he was talking about how all his other shows he had tried to put gay characters in. Because Brian Fuller is himself gay. Hmm. And they would, he kept running into roadblocks from it's, studios it's, or networks. It's not the time. Right. And so <laughs> what he did with Pushing Daisies was he made it so unabashedly gay in tone and color and style. Like and he, as, made it, he made it gay to an extent that it could not be removed. Right. Like he's like, his quote was, I made the gayness a stain so deep it could not be wiped away. That's and like gay movies are very much in a term, not particularly gay movies, but also very much black movies, very much black voices, to the extent that a lot of white, the modern movie-going cinematic audience doesn't like Spike Lee because he gets oh, in your man. face and lets his oh, anger I'm show. So, I'm so excited for Black Klansman. Oh. And I think Ryan Coogler managed to do just that. Like, it was after yeah. Spike Lee made a comic book movie, which I'm pretty sure Spike Lee wants to make a comic book movie. No one will let him, though, because Spike Lee is Spike Lee, and will probably right. not make a compromise that a studio will want. Yeah, I mean, Coogler came on the scene with, it was Fruitvale Station, wasn't it? Right. Which is like, also something else that should be noted, that he started out political. Fruitvale yeah, Station this is, not new. is a movie that looks at politics head-on. At, at modern politics, and he carried it over to some extent in Creed. And I think yeah. Marvel saw two movies. I was going to say the man. The man has done three feature films, and you can see a pattern. He's done <laughs> Fruitvale Station and Creed and Black Panther. <laughs> <laughs> the the dude brings like the, the dude makes movies that cannot have blackness subtracted from them and still function. And really, the weakness in all comic book movies is the third act finale climax of the CGI people hitting each other. Yeah, the well, the green screen punch fest. Right. Every comic book movie has this, Black Panther included, but at least with Black Panther, there's some sort of emotional weight involved. Yeah, like, like the you, outcome have, matters. you have friends fighting friends, like it's... 
It's it interesting is a because civil war in Wakanda. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was gonna say like it's it's civil war, but despite not having all of the characters set up in separate movies, we still understand and connect with the stakes. Right. Like I it's... should also mention there was an erasure of a queer storyline in Black Panther. It yeah. Has established that's probably for the course for the great <laughs> progressive studio known as Marvel. <sighs> who, now seeing Wonder Woman being such a success, have fast-tracked Captain Marvel. Yep. Which is co-directed by a woman. Co-directed. Co-directed. Oh, I... Mm, like, it's interesting to see, like, them have to try and catch up with DC in literally only one respect. <laughs> well, and this is the thing. I think DC <laughs> is going to get to a point, because now that there's been a huge cleaning of house... Yeah. And DC, as we mentioned, has always had, since Man of Steel, uh, I never saw Green Lantern, maybe you can attest, some oh. sort of political aspect in it. I saw Green Lantern in theaters, and I think that it was about uh, CGI space people punching each other. Okay, so starting with Man of Steel. Like, there's been, <laughs> to some degree, at the very least, a political agenda. Because while it doesn't work, it is very clear what Zack Snyder's trying to do. Yeah, and I think he, Batman he wants Superman to... Style... Uh, go ahead. Well, he, he wants to... He has that, like, Ayn Rand idea of trickle-down greatness. And right. that's... He, he wants his Superman to get to that point, but he doesn't seem to have any idea of well, how to do that sensically. For Snyder, <laughs> the individual is more important than the collective. Right. Which, Which made the idea of him doing a Justice League movie hilarious. Fighting. Yeah. <laughs> because the individual is more important than the collective, so if space Nazis invade, well, you could stop them. But what would that mean to you, indestructible human being? No, uh. sorry, indestructible alien life form, for which this is wholly responsible for, because they are there specifically for you! Right. But no, everybody's going to love Superman anyway because look at how strong he is. Oh, like it's, yeah. it's that strength and greatness that mean we don't have to question or accept him. He he should just be... Oh, well, the on. strongman ideology feeds into really the Trump phenomenon. Doll hands himself. <laughs> because that's what he is. He's a strongman. He has no real ideology. <laughs> is he? He's just, well, that's, I, mean, well, that's how he's seen. He comes yeah, in, yeah, all his positions are strong. And must I know, you're, I know you're using strongman in the political sense, but I just... Right, oh, I know, yes. With a funny. tiny hand, it's hard to lift. I get that. Well, not even that, but he, he literally has the, the physique of um, Humpty Dumpty. Like it's... <laughs> And by the way, not to not to fat shame, like health in any size, all the way. But the dude dictated about Donald Trump. The dude Period. dictated a letter to his doctor, <laughs> his like Thomas Pynchon character looking like stoned <laughs> all the time doctor, about how he will be the healthiest person ever elected. Like, it's insane. Okay, sorry, I I'm raining it in now. I'm back. All right, <laughs> but like. When you watch Batman v Superman, that's what it is. It's the strong man argument. These are two. These are two men. They're great because they are strong. But and their strength came from things that they inherited from their parents. <laughs> right. Like there's no real <laughs> sacrifice until Superman does that one thing at the end. But Im- until Superman does the thing that Wonder Woman should have done instead. Right. Uh. <laughs> and indeed, the one flaw in the Wonder Woman movie, which is also hugely political. Yeah is the fact that it devolves into 
a CGI fight, but in fact, unlike Batman Begins, ends with her not killing the person who deserves it. She kills a god, but gods aren't people. Yeah, gods, kill all gods. It's fine. <laughs> I'm good with that. But the <laughs> moment she is given the opportunity to kill Dr. What's-Her-Face, Phantom Poison. of the Upper Lady. Dr. Poison. Dr. Poison. She's like, no. No. It's like, mercy becomes a political statement. Yeah. True and mercy. Not just, yeah. well, you did it, you fuck. You... Not, not, just, not just the mercy of, I don't have to kill you. But I was not going to save you. Not saving him not means you're going to die. Not the mercy of physics, but the mercy <laughs> of <laughs> basic human morality. And also, right. the notion of World War One makes it easier because if it was World War Two. That would be a complete. Although I mean, although they made storm. it look as they made it look as much like World War Two as possible. They did. Like uh, until you got to No Man's Land, it was hard <laughs> to tell. <laughs> but but like one woman. I think the only, like, the political statement in Wonder Woman of overriding the Zack Snyder individual imperative. Yeah. Uh, like, because, oh, you know, more so, than so much. Any other superhero movie it's done, bizarrely. Yeah. It's, it's weird that that movie is in the DC universe. <laughs> <laughs> That's weird that that movie exists when you look at the Marvel universe as a whole. True. Uh,. Yeah, because, like, most Marvel movies devolve into, like, instead of having a broader sort of philosophical point, you, you punch the you punch the dude, or you punch the dude's faceless CGI army until they're, enough of them are dead that we win. Like, there's it's... A, there's a mission. You gotta stop him from getting the stones. Gotta get all the stones. And... Well, again, I would actually say, again, like, one of my favorite uh, political... Like uh, one of the most political uh, Marvel movies outside of um, Black Panther is Spider-Man: Homecoming. Exactly, because the entire plot is driven by Tony's short-sighted paranoia, putting like desperate people in a circumstance that essentially forces them to become criminals or starve, and that l- puts them on the trajectory to do all these horrible things. And then in the end. Spider-Man doesn't kill his villain. Like, he, he stops him from taking worse stuff, and then, like, that's that's what he does. He arrests him. He sends him to jail. Like, there's a sort of... And, and, and yet, Tony Stark never pays for his crimes. <laughs> Unlike almost any other superhero movie, Spider-Man Homecoming has a really odd respect for rule of law. Yeah, and, I mean, kind of even more, like... It's it's willing to live with its gray areas in a way that even the Raimi Spider-Man movies weren't because the, the Raimi Spider-Man just left a pile of corpses in his wake. Yes. Well, <laughs> and and yeah, a lot of like that he didn't kill them, but it was always like, well, it's going to be easier if we have the goblin impale himself on his own glider, which right. has comic book precedent, or have Dr. Octopus, in a poignant moment of self-reflection and realization, sacrifice himself to prevent, like, only being the monster that he had become. Like, I love Spider-Man 2. Spider-Man 2 is so beautiful. <laughs> but, but again, like, that's also really handy for keeping Spider-Man's secrets. Well, not only that, but speaking of Spider-Man 2 and speaking of Doc Ock, <laughs> the moment on the subway train. Oh, yeah. When God, he is carried... That. By all the New Yorkers, and then defended by him, by them, because he's like, one York, of us. New York is a character in Spider-Man 1 and 2, and maybe in 3, I don't remember. <laughs> but that's also a political statement of just a sort of 
people there's... coming together. I think yeah. what we're getting at is more and more superhero movies are less about people and more about people who are powered, super powered, and CGI effects. Right. It's about like the 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 best uh, superhero movie politics to me are are the ones that recognize humanity either at an individual level or at a group level. Like I love the fact that Spider Man one and two like both of their third acts involve well second to third acts involve a Greek chorus of New Yorkers supporting Spider Man. <laughs> <laughs> like it ha- like it happens when he's fighting the Goblin and it happens when he's fighting Doc Ogg. Like it's. It's cheesy, but also wonderful. And, well, you know, like you said, also, like, that recognition of humanity in Dr. Poison, the recognition of the failures of the former kings of Wakanda, like, all of these things, like, the about recognizing the flaws of power and the, the humanity of, like, people. Like, it's, it's great. <laughs> well, Spider-Man Homecoming, going back to what you said about Tony... It's one of the few movies to address the actual class of Tony Stark. Yeah. Because he is a rich billionaire inventor, Elon Musk, and he seems to never have any real consequence, with the exception of Spider-Man Homecoming and Iron Man 3, in which he is literally forced to realize he created this. Now, in the first Iron Man, he's like, oh my god, this is my fault. But well, his <laughs> Iron Man one and two are amazingly short-sighted in the like. Oh no, I, I've realized I've been making weapons, and this isn't great. Only I should use the weapons that I invent <laughs> exactly. to kill the people that I think are bad. And it doesn't really learn the lesson it pretends to learn. Right, and like it, it gets away with it by cloaking Iron Man's enemies, especially in the first film, and and kind of in the second, in like vague terrorist imagery. Not like only it's... that, but they managed to get charismatic actors to play the villain. And they oh, just... they so did. The moment Jeff Bridges just breaks the calm of Obadiah Slade when he's in the lab of Tony Stark built this in a cave. Yeah. Like, the audience is like, what the hell? <laughs> like, that, like, Iron Man comes depressingly close to, like, con- like being aware of considerations of, of class and, and, like, political ramifications of things, but it... it even in Iron Man 3, it doesn't quite stick the landing, but it's so good in all of its other aspects that right. I don't it's, mind as least, much. It feels like an honest attempt to tackle the thing. And I mean, Iron Man 3 also tackles other things that I think are political issues worthy of consideration, like post-traumatic stress from combat and trauma. Like well, that, or oh, the very <laughs> the twist of the Mandarin. Yeah, yeah, the the fact that the Mandarin is using fear of brown people terrorism, but is in fact just an industrialist white guy, like, using that to build his own power. Like, that's, that's a good twist. Again, granted, like the fascist all hands I mean, granted, Muslim ban. <laughs> granted, I, I will argue that the twist, of, the twist of Iron Man 3 is the twist of Iron Man 1, but done better. Exactly. Like, it's just done by a better filmmaker, because Jon Favreau's fine, but Shane Black is great. Well, Jon Favreau, I think, is really good, and he's just so good at not being noticed. People forget how good he is. Because you don't do Iron Man 1, 2, The Jungle Book, and Elf, and then Chef. Like, those those movies have nothing in common. Yeah, and, and I mean, I think this goes back to what we've talked about a few times on this program. It can almost be a running theme. Like, that idea of greatness not just being having a visible stamp. Exactly. His visible stamp is quality and understanding how a story needs to work in order to succeed the best. 
Right, that that not all stories need to be like, oh, this was definitely that director. Right. The... Uh, we anyway, bring we this up because we'll talk about this in another podcast, but yeah. it used to be when you watch... There was a survey mm. done a while back that said like a large percentage of millennial movie buffs haven't seen a movie past like 1970 or 19, something like that. Uh, it's not a huge surprise. The when no, the not. when the sort of like when the sort of brat pack codified the modern blockbuster, like that um, sort of. <laughs> but if you watch movies from World War Two, mm. or even the Vietnam era, what you see is a very strong political bend in the blockbusters. Yeah. And what we have now with the modern day blockbuster, comic book movies, video game movies, is nothing. Yeah. There's no because they want to be global blockbusters. There's no real political bite to them. There's well, a I mean, the first that... nibble, but I yeah, because it, so, it makes it makes the first consideration capital, and everything else comes after. And if, if like if you want it to sell the farthest, then that's going to undercut political questions, whether it should or shouldn't. Because, I mean, you have that question about, like, this goes back to those Sony leaks and, like, the presumptions of the people making these decisions about, like, black people being able to lead movies. Right. Even though it's demonstrably untrue. (laughs) (laughs) Like, it's not like the... It's not just that the primary consideration is how can we sell this in as many places, but also in the fact that uh, this is going to be dictated by a bunch of presumptions that they just have about how to do that. Like, uh, it's insane. I would argue <laughs> that the sort of current neutered political climate of the modern blockbuster yeah. is why there is such an innate backlash to The Last Jedi. Oh, yeah. oh God. Because oh, have The you... Last oh, Jedi you... has a political stance. <laughs> It does. Uh, and, and I mean, it, it, and again, like The Last Jedi's political stance is woven at a narrative level. It's not just casting. Right. It's, it's the story is about, like, the the failure of the individual hero and, and, like, what happens when you think you're above cooperating with the people you're supposed to be working with. Right. Not only that, but it also shows that a lot of times much like with the current regime, like, sometimes you just don't have an agenda that just, they just want power. Right. Cause they like, want what you is to the... have less and they want more. Uh, yeah. And I mean, that's, that's you, you know, all of the, the loudest complaints about Last Jedi are, are about like, oh, the casino thing, what's, that's pointless, because it had a pretty... defining moment of the movie, okay. Like, it's, Yeah. Uh, I mean, of course, like, I am, I'm pretty sure I'm excommunicated from Star Wars fandom because I don't care what official canon is generally. And also, (laughs) and also, I think the best Star Wars movies are Rogue One and then The Last Jedi. (laughs) So, I'm a monster. (laughs) I think also, even when Marvel does, when they do manage to smuggle in the political ideas. Yeah. I think the modern audience is so used to not looking for them mm. that they don't see them. The amount of people I've talked to who do not see in Thor Ragnarok the anti-nationalism and treatise on how we should treat immigration 
Oh, wow. Even though Taikia Watiti himself has said, that's what I was trying to do. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, like, the, one of the things that's amazing about it, and I think this makes a great test case to show how people, if it's white characters, people will, even if it's white characters on an alien planet, uh, people will not think it's political because the trajectory of Thor Ragnarok and Black Panther are incredibly similar. <laughs> they really are. Like, there was a video by um, on YouTube by Sean, who, formerly the channel was Sean and Jen, but uh, of, uh, I forget the title, but he did a video about Black Panther uh, because there was a series of weird right-wing videos about, is Black Panther alt-right? Uh, which was the... hilarious. Yeah, uh, because that apparently... That to be it's... disavowing of everything the alt-right stands for. I yeah. mean, the existence of people who aren't white. Yeah, it's amazing. I'll, I'll send you a link to this video because I think you'll enjoy it. But like he he starts out with a couple of points. Uh, but one of the main one of the main ones is is just comparing the the trajectories of of Thor Ragnarok and Black Panther, and Thor Ragnarok is by far not seen as political, despite as you said the director the the writer director's literal intentions and the text <laughs> of the film. Well, <laughs> and that's one of the things that's sort of shocking, and even. Josh Bowen has had to cop to this because he was on yeah. Stephen uh, Stephen Colbert, and mm. they're like, you know, Thanos sounds a lot like the president. I've I've one hundred percent seen people say that uh, Thanos isn't political, and it's amazing to me. Well, that, and he's that... like, look, I think he was meant to empathize a little with them because you have to understand Thanos and his mind is one hundred percent correct. He's callous and pragmatic to the degree that's inhumane. Much like the president. And I'm like, okay, that's the thing. It's not really woven into the narrative because you do such right. a good job of getting us to empathize with them that the only insult we hear is, well, I guess you're a prophet, which I get is an insult from Doctor Strange, but the modern audience doesn't really get that. Doctor Strange, bit... <laughs> Doctor Strange, who, by the way, can literally see the future and could just be like, by the way, Thanos, here are all the ways that your plan is going to fail. Right. So if your plan is to be successful, maybe you should just listen to me. I can see the future. In the first Avengers, <laughs> Loki wants people to kneel, and they make aspersions. They make it ex- not to Hitler, but to the least of Third Reich. They make it explicit. No, because they don't say the that's they again. They don't say the name. Right. But like Captain America's literal line, because I'm this guy and I can do this off the cuff, <laughs> is the last time I was in Germany. And I saw somebody standing above everyone else. We ended up disagreeing. Well, that's the thing. Because they don't say the name, you can easily say Red Skull. Uh, Or Red Skull, but you should say Hitler. Right. That's, I think, what Joss Whedon was alluding to. But because now that we live in this hellscape, (laughs) logically they can say. Uh. And that's, like, there's a real sort of, like, when even Richard Godwin's like, for, oh, for kind of, I'll call them Nazis. That's what these little shits are. Yeah. Like, I think it's okay to disband Godwin's law when it doesn't apply. <laughs> well, the, the thing is that Godwin's law is not a judgment. It's not. Uh, I'm going to be a pedant here for a minute because <laughs> I always am. But uh, Godwin's law merely states the likelihood of people talking about Nazis. It was it's it's extrapolated to mean and whoever says Nazi first is wrong, but that's <laughs> insane because sometimes people are Nazis. They really are. 
Uh, yeah. So, uh. Which is what sucks, because, in case we haven't made it clear, fuck Nazis. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that is, uh, generally speaking, one of the, one of the, the stands that are the one of the brave stands that our <laughs> podcast takes is that Nazis are shits. Did you know that? <laughs> Even the Blues Brothers don't like you. I want you to know, as much as you may love them, they don't like you. Ugh, Illinois Especially Nazis. Especially if you live in Illinois. Speaking of which, there is an Illinois Nazi on the Republican ballot. Like, yes, that's... I know. Okay, just making sure. Speaking of which, uh, <laughs> um, the, the guy in New York who lost to the Democratic Socialists. Woo! You know what he uh, did at his concession what? speech? He oh, picked no. up what his guitar he... and serenaded her with Bruce Springsteen's Born to Run. Uh-huh. Because I... that's awesome. I I don't know what I was expecting, but it wasn't that. <laughs> <laughs> it's nice to know that cooperation is possible by two people who fundamentally disagree, but at the same time, do you agree that no, no? And I mean, uh, although also, I mean, like, the guy who has been a professional political operative for a long time now and was, you know, second in the Democrats oh, in the House is going right. to be fine. Like, right. he's... Well, real quick before we go, I think a lot of this has to do, because it's not just comic book movies. No. A lot of movies dealing with racism were oddly apolitical. And mostly what movies played it, by it, white people. Purposely so. Purposely so. Like, because the, 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 the er example of this being the debacle around Crash. Right. Not, not the excellent J.G. Ballard novel uh, about being sexually aroused by car wrecks, by the way. That's the but... movie, by the way. It is. Yeah. <laughs> and it's better than the one that won an Oscar. <laughs> Fuck you. Really fight me. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> Sorry, I, I derailed you. Go. <laughs> no, but like white storytellers, when they talk about racism or really any kind of oppression, tend to make it apolitical because that's how they view it. When you watch uh, the amount of white liberals who haven't seen Selma, it's kind of astounding. Oh. Because what you see in Selma are factions of the civil rights movement trying to figure out how to work together because they don't actually like each other or agree with each other. No. It's staggering. (laughs) And it becomes very political, and you see Martin Luther King trying to craft a image that he can sell to the press because he understands that matters. Yeah, like the the awareness of media savvy, like the The need for that. The same goes for Spike Lee's brilliant and masterful Malcolm X. Like, mm-hmm. politics, we've gotten away from politics so much that there's so much that we can all watch together, but it doesn't do anything. Well, pol- politics, I think, one of the roots of the problem is politics isn't something people know what that word means. Like, it's treated like a brand. Right. Like, uh, oh, my politics are the blue one and your politics are the red one, as opposed to politics being how we control the boundaries of people's lives in a society and like choices over right and wrong and life and death and all of like it's it's abstracted because we see it on tv all the time and it's a team sport but not only that also political i also think 
Lindsay Ellis also talks about this. Essentially, is oh yeah, her her video about uh, fascism in media is we don't maybe understand one of the best what videos. fascism is, or the fact that there are many kinds of fascism. Fascist. Yeah, it, the the term itself has has gotten very abstract, and there are people who overuse it. Although, and yeah, like there's there's problems when you watch classic movies, Hollywood movies. What you see are genre movies attacking various strains of fascism. Mm. McCarthyism, that's homegrown fascism. They attack yeah. um, authoritarianism. Which is also a little bit homegrown now, but at the time was overseas. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean author- authoritarianism, like uh, broadly speaking, authoritarianism is just the general, like uh, respecting rule over all else, and then fascism beneath that is just more specific. It's it's right. authoritarian nationalism. So, uh, like those those differences matter. <laughs> right, and so westerns, noirs, even musicals to some extent. They, they tackled the depression. They talked about economic yeah. oppression or economic fascism in terms of mm. the economic disparity between the wealthy and, at that point, the majority of the country. Right. Um, like, oh, no, oh, actually, did you not know? Uh, the, we're, the majority of the country is still poor. Oh, figured. Yeah. I, I'm right there <laughs> with them. I don't feel <laughs> alone anymore. Uh, but what the what we're getting at is it doesn't have to be like a single political message, but just one, just like an honest to God, like one thing they rail against. Because hmm. as we said before, the two Joe Johnsons, the Rocketeer Joe Johnson has a thing he's absolutely against. The Marvel Joe Johnson doesn't seem to care about Nazis all of a sudden, which is <laughs> I refuse to believe that Joe Johnson has ever stopped caring. Right, like I I don't buy that. That is not how that goes. The last Jedi um, being deeply political as it is, and people going, well, what if we bring George Lucas back? I'm like, understand that the first trilogy <laughs> is political, but maybe not in a way that you can see. The second trilogy, holy crap, is that political. So the trend yeah, but, would only tell me that this would be even more political if you brought him like, back. For, for all its flaws the and bad like acting and directing and all sorts of... The, the prequel trilogy was about the failing of a liberal state sliding into fascism. With the infamous line, this is how democracy dies, with applause. Yeah, like, it's... George Lucas screwed up a lot with the prequels, but they were... But, like, the politics of them wasn't a mistake. It was (laughs) what they were built around. So you don't get to say Last Jedi is too political? I'm like, did you not see... I know you did, because you whined about them consistently. Did you? Did you not see the previous ones? Did you? <laughs> did you not see those? Did you not see all the other Star Wars movies? That's weird. Did you do that on purpose? I did. Okay. <laughs> although, although I'm I'm stealing that joke from Hassan Minaj, okay. <laughs> uh, who a couple of years ago, I believe, during the uh, the correspondence dinner, is huh? I do not see Steve Bannon. <laughs> huh. Not see. Steve Bannon. <laughs> uh, I love, like, that, oh man. <laughs> on that note, we have to go. Yeah. Oh, this we'll we'll return to this topic at least once more. Yeah. No, there's like, a lot to talk about because I want to get into classic Hollywood movies and how they responded and the nuances and stuff of that. And there's so much more to talk about on this particular topic because oh, yeah. there will probably be at least five more comic book movies out by the time we record this one next. Yep. 
Uh, I, I myself am, am excited slash trepidatious to see Ant-Man and the Wasp because I loved the first Ant-Man. I thought it was a breath of fresh air, and I keep hearing sort of tepid things about this one, and it makes me scared. I, anyway. I'm excited for this one because I love Evangel- Evangelis- Evangelis- Evangeline, Evangeline Lily. There you go. Sort of like the way she's doing this past second, she's awesome. And I really want uh, to do well because she is gotta... just smashing it. <laughs> I want it to be good, but I'm afraid. Anyway, so thank you for listening. Uh, Jeremiah, give us the outro credits. Uh, gotta go. Oh, sorry. Yeah, no, sorry. Don't forget to listen to the other podcasts on the Phantom Minnows, <laughs> such as the Phantom Minnowless, Unabashed Book Snobbery, Ladies First, and of course, our little show. Um, that's all we have. Say goodbye, Thad. Bye! Alright, everyone. See you next time. <laughs>